Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible leaders from around the globe. And today's guest, actually, I have been trying to get her onto this podcast for a good few months now. So I want to introduce to you today, Donna Odedar. Uh, Donna does something quite unique. You know, uh, I love where she's coming from and, and we're going to explore her work a lot more. But let me tell you who she is. She's got 16 years of experience in the public sector. She has been the head of law for metropolitan authorities, but now she is involved in serious case reviews and child, child safeguarding. Well, we're going to unpick what that means for a lot of you who may not understand that. I do, obviously, with my experience in the police service. But we're going to start unpicking that and understand what that means to organisations. So, Donna, great to have you here. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's been a long time in the making, as you know. Really and actually, has. we were we were uh, sort of diaried in to do this a, a few months ago, and uh, you were quite poorly then. So I'm so pleased that we've waited for you to get your voice back and actually get you on here so we can hear some of the valuable insights that you've got to share with us. Uh, Donna, I, I want to really pick in on your history here. So you've got 16 years experience in the public sector. What were you doing? Uh, you've been head of law. What was that like? Do you want to just tell us a bit more about who you are and what you've been up to? I began by doing care proceedings. So that's that was my where, where I kind of, I became an advocate. I was constantly in court really enjoyed kind of this values-led approach of being part of a local authority Um, and so I moved from not only safeguarding children to safeguarding adults doing some adult protection work and some criminal law as well which I suppose probably led me into the world of domestic homicide reviews now and then I was promoted (laughs) and as happens to so many of us things change and they might not necessarily um, light you up in the same way as where you started. So I moved to head of service, and head of service involved creating these wonderful structures which were once called local safeguarding children boards and local safeguarding adults boards, and now they're partnerships. So this was great. We were getting people around the table, multi-agency, to think about um, how we could come together to safeguard these vulnerable people. Then I moved into a chief officer role and that became much more about the the political side. So this is um, the evening meetings, the councillors, complaints against members. And I had what many of us who choose a second career, this kind of moment of, hang on a minute, is is this really what I want? Is this really me? And I felt like 
um, I wasn't a fit but wasn't quite sure what to do with that and I think maybe lots of people might resonate with that so there was this period where I was just kind of spotting things yeah, thinking no, about what that. was going to come next yeah um, and I can with hindsight I can look back Cole and I can see that I was watching the leaders and the leaders had to constantly juggle priorities and I was noticing that the, the agendas that I really cared about didn't have the interest at the highest level. So yeah. there was a lot of interest in planning applications and many other things, but the, 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 the leaders, the political leaders, weren't really accountable about safeguarding at the highest level. Yes. And then in the background, I think I was watching that these things called reviews had the ability to just turn it all upside down and change those priorities. And I saw them as quite influential, a route to make a difference in the way that I wanted to. So I took a really bold decision. And I think many people might be listening and thinking, I remember that moment. It's a jump off a cliff moment and you leave behind structure and safety and colleagues yeah. and you, you do the thing. And then I realised it was helpful for me to talk about that journey of doing the thing mm. because lots of other people are thinking about doing the thing. And um, that, I guess that's that's where all this came from and, you know, showing them how I did it and um, for it to not as be a lonely place for, for them as it was for me. So essentially what you're trying to do is create shortcuts for people to do what you're doing right now uh, without having to maybe go through some of those head-scratching moments, those self-doubt moments that we, have, we all often have uh, when we're trying to find our purpose in life and our mission. So talking about reviews, you know, without getting into the depth of the reviews just yet, but the whole concept of a review, you know, you, you said that these oftentimes were the things that changed the direction or thinking in an organisation. You worked within the public sector and the public sector can be, a, sometimes can be a, a bureaucratic behemoth. Uh, and it's very often difficult and challenging to think change things around so why do you think reviews often worked to change a a, a a formula of thinking around the you know natural evolutionary thinking something tragic has happened something tragic has taken place and it's really interesting to watch how different organizations react to that call mm. so um you know, they might just contract around the media interest or, you know, this is going to be in court. Yeah. The leaders might have um, kind of a banging the table kind of lessons will have to be learnt. You know, we're going to go into compliance mode. We're going to, you know, we're going to show accountability. And that's the most difficult organisation to then go into and conduct a review because, of course, it doesn't feel like the leadership have given their top-down blessing to this. It feels like, yeah. you know, I'm going to be defensive now when I come into this review. A different kind of organisation, a learning organisation, might actually say, OK, this has happened, we need to be accountable. The leader might go and have a cup of tea in the office with the workforce and say you know it's time for us to learn i'll give i'll give you my blessing now yeah. to go forward into this process and um let's see what we can do to create some some change so it's really interesting from an organizational perspective you might go into the one type of organization or another and then it's your role as the independent with all your chairing skills your soft skills 
to help people to understand that this is about learning and not blame. Yeah, I love that. I, you know, um, a phrase jumped to my mind as you were talking there, Donna, this whole okay. concept of blame culture. And we we often talked about blame culture when I was in the police service. We often said, you know, the police service is becoming less of a blame culture. But then I used to find that, you know, when things went wrong, we didn't necessarily always look to learn. We look to point a finger sometimes. Uh, uh, so, And that still exists in so many organisations. As much as you try to eradicate, it has to be a collective approach. Uh, and for me, it is almost like the personality of the organisation, the culture of the organisation. So what is it what is it that an organisation can do to, to become a learning organisation, as you call it, do you think? I think there's so much about soft skills here and there's so much that's simple. I think people questions like that people think right well this needs a restructure this needs a whole scale change and i think it's yeah. much more about behaviors um than compliance you know this suggestion this suggestion came from from ray jones professor ray jones who was a um, a director of children's services about why aren't those leaders going in and having a cup of tea with those yeah. who um who had been involved and who obviously have a lot to carry within themselves and yeah. are attaching blame to themselves so I, I do think there's a lot in terms of how leaders react. I think leaders themselves become quite terrified, don't they, Cole? Because this is attracting media interest. You know, is it going to set up a whole inspection framework around our organisation? Or even litigation now, nowadays. Absolutely. You know, it's Who's a big one. supporting the leaders yeah. to, to not behave in a fearful way? There's a fascinating book, Donna, that... Really, I, I love the fact that you keep talking about soft skills. You've mentioned it a couple of three times uh, and and you're talking about soft skills and you're giving it some level of importance. And, you know, we often think about soft skills and, you know, they're the nice to have. I actually think they're fundamental. They should be a golden thread in your organisational culture because it leads on to this learning organisation, this, this learning culture that you have. There's a brilliant book on everything that you're really talking about right now called uh, Black Box Thinking by uh, Matthew Side. I love his books, by the way. Uh, and this book was inspired by his his experience of his wife going into hospital for what seemed to be a low level operation, but there was something, there was some kind of a tube in her, in her throat and um, some complications arose halfway through the, um, through the operation. And the surgeon went through a set process, set procedure. Uh, and then one procedure, he, the surgeon kept repeating that procedure and it didn't work. And the nurse who was sitting, standing in the corner later said, I knew he was doing it wrong, but I didn't feel that I was able to tell the surgeon of all people what they should be doing. And, and Matthew Syed so, was inspired to write a book around blame culture and, and learning organisations. And, and he found that um, the one organisation, the one industry that is a learning industry is the air, 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 airplane industry. Uh, and what, one of the things that uh, in aerospace that they look for when there's a, an airplane crash is the black box. And, and that black box will give them some insight as to what happened so that they can ensure that the mistake is eradicated for all of the other hundreds and thousands of uh, airplanes in the sky. Whereas... In the public sector, predominantly, there is this defensive mentality. There is this blame culture that still exists, particularly within health, uh, where, you know, they are frightened of litigation. Um, and that sort of still exists in the UK 
as well as the US, isn't it? Yeah, and I, you know, there's so much in there to unpack about why that might be. Is that because, you know, in health organisations, we're always coming up against, right, I can't, I can't share this, it's data protection. You know, mm. um, we've got legal frameworks around us that, that make us um, contract, we're fearful, aren't we? Or we've got the way the media... I'm interested in the media and the media's treatment of public sector professionals, almost as archetypes. Yes, So, um, you know, the police officer is either an absolute hero... You know, um, perhaps an officer was injured or or killed in in, in the line of service. He's a, he's, a, he's a hero, or well, actually, no. This organisation is you know it's it's broken, mm. it's institutionally wrong, and then we might associate every officer with being exceptionally racist or a misogynist, and I, I feel like they're extremes. It's very pendulous, I always think. No, and it's not the day to day. We don't see the day to day positive work that's happening it's the same for social workers health professionals you know clap for the nhs they're heroes mm. but then as part of the same pandemic they just seemed in they just seemed dis, you know as if they were disposable have they got a vaccine no well let's just sack them then yeah. i just feel like the media's got a lot to to answer for in terms of how the public see uh, a public sector professional as well and how a public sector professional feels so perhaps there's some status there yeah. that, that would really um, boost people to... I'm thinking about your example of, he's a surgeon, I can't question him. Because public sector professionals do see themselves as low status, I think, by comparison to others. You often find, don't you, with public sector professionals, by and large, they are all doing whatever it is that they're doing within the public sector because of this sense of vocation, this sense of service. Uh, as opposed to, I want to earn more money. Yeah. Uh, and it is a sad shame. You're absolutely right. Uh, I've never really thought of it in that context that, you know, within the media, the eye of the media, public sector is either portrayed to be that super heroic on one occasion, then, you know, swing into the opposite end of the pendulum and the spectrum and, and, and they are demonised in, in other ways and everyone tarred with the same brush. Uh, and what we're missing in all of this is a humanisation of the person behind the uniform is in essence uh, and, and recognizing that these are human beings. These aren't robots sitting within the public sector, but maybe the public sector itself has a responsibility to, to humanize its own environment, to demonstrate to the wider public, Hey, we are just people from within the community doing a job for the community. Don't you think? If we thought of ourselves as spokespersons to educate, to show what the daily grind is of a, of a police officer, of a social worker, the positive work that's going on, that's probably not mega newsworthy. It's not like post-tragedy. Let's, you know, let's blame the social worker. Let's blame the police officer. Let's blame mm. the health organisation. You know, the more that we can show the balance of what we do, I feel like, yes, we do have a responsibility to do that. So you're doing some great work now. You know, you found your passion for serious case review and you've now launched uh, the uh, SILP, I think it is, the Significant Incident Learning Process. And I think the title says it all. This is like case review, but with the focus being around learning. Do you want to just tell me about SILP? This was a model, a methodology that started in 2009 and this was considered 
downright experimental you know we had all the we had all those objections you can't do this you can't all sit in a room together you can't bring the practitioners in there to talk data protection no 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 you know it was considered are you crazy trying to do this Um, because we wanted we wanted to speak to people who were involved at the time we wanted to share all the information across agencies so that everyone could finally see their piece of the jigsaw and how it fitted into that piece of the jigsaw over there from that agency that agency they'd never seen that before um and yes it's embedded and most reviews now do have learning events and it took a long time to to instill that some of this stuff is okay and you know when you can kind of lean on your i i, I was in the legal profession i i, I am a qualified lawyer we really ha- do have safety to to share in these circumstances mm. whenever you're instilling or embedding something new call there's kind of a lot of you know this is okay to do yeah. we're not we're not going to um you know, we're not going to end up with staff who are, are, are really on the floor after this. We're going to ha- have sensitive and robust chairing environment. So it came from a, pl- a place of, is this really ever going to work? Like many new initiatives do, is that ever going to be a thing? Groundbreaking by the sounds of it. I mean, how you've managed to get the buy-in from such a vast array of um you know, public sector bodies that would probably be involved in a serious case review, how you've managed to get them to all think uh, uh, around that common vision and then work to that common vision. I mean, I remember when Crime and Disorder Act came in in 1998 and I became like the national lead trainer uh, for crime and disorder training, which, by the way, was a a significant piece of legislation in the United Kingdom where it's in essence, in the very simplest sense, it required all public sector bodies to work together, to share information, to collectively work, to reduce crime and disorder in the United Kingdom and it not just being the job of the police. But I remember, you know, we used to have um, very senior police officers coming with their counterpart uh, chief executives from their local authorities hand in hand, coming to learn about information sharing. And within the whole of the Crime and Disorder Act, right up until I re- retired, I was still hearing of instances where one public sector body or another would be reticent about sharing some piece of information and they'd be hiding behind the guise of, you know, data protection. So for you to have managed to have got that, that is a like a massive piece of achievement. Uh, so well done to you. How have you done that? It sounds really similar, actually, to the Crime and Disorder Act call. And I, I do remember some of that from when I was working in the local authority at that time. Yeah. Um, and I think that what we need to do is recognise that what we're asking people to do is take risk. So um, we are that. supporting a person around taking a risk. Um, rather than, no, we're just doing this. I'm sorry, we're just, you know, this, that doesn't work, does it? With these, with these structures, with hang on, we need to, we need to discuss this with the lawyers, and that's now going to take six weeks. So I'm sorry, we can't, you know, you know, this is how it, it could feel. Yeah. Whereas you know, you are, you are making your case, you are being supportive and saying we've done this here, you know, and these were the results. Was that kind of the way that you rolled with it when you were doing Yeah, it was really. And, you know, you, you, you're so right when you talk about risk. And it, it is about, 
you know, moving away from that defensive kind of mentality. And I think a lot of organisations beyond even the public sector do have this thing around, you know what, we want to stay in the comfort zone, even if the comfort zone isn't a place that we particularly enjoy. But we know that in order to get out of the comfort zone, we need to have a greater risk appetite. So it's really encouraging people to have a greater risk appetite and say, hey, some things will work, some things won't work. And you know what? When I became an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, for the last nine years, I've been running my businesses, I've made a, a ton of mistakes, a ton of mistakes. And that is after 32 years of being in an environment where we didn't like making mistakes. Mm. You know, uh, my risk appetite has increased tenfold, but I'm also enjoying the journey as part of that. And I've achieved things that I never thought I could achieve. And that could be the truth for so many organisations, couldn't it? Absolutely. And, I, I, you know, the more that we can have that entrepreneurial flair, even within the public sector, mm. I think there's really exciting opportunities. But, of course, um, people might have been a long time in post. There's really um, interesting cultural issues about public sector employment, isn't there? Because it's seen as, well, you stay till you, your pension. Yeah. So it's like, well, hang on, we've, we've been doing it like this for years. No, no. I, All I, of that. I've, I've, known how, I've known how to do this for years, so we're not changing now. Um, so there's loads of cultural stuff that I think would be really positive work with public sector organisations. Do you? I, I absolutely agree. Do you know, uh, just a couple of days ago, I was doing a talk around inclusion, diversity uh, okay. to the aerospace industry and all their leaders were there. And there's about four big organisations from the aerospace industry there. Uh, and they were so so excited about this alternative view to diversity that I was presenting. I was saying, hey, we've been talking about diversity the same way for the last four decades and nothing really has changed. So why not flip it on its head and think about it in a wholly different way? Let's think about having a different culture. Let's not focus on these protected characteristics. Let's just focus on getting the culture right. And maybe you get better representation as a result of becoming an employer of choice. Now, they were so excited. They said, oh, we're, we're up for this. We're up for, you know, doing something completely new and taking things and putting them on the head. Or, But I know that same conversation would not have happened necessarily in the police, in, in the public sector. And we may have talked about it. We may have even, you know, shown a bit of excitement. But in terms of taking the action that's necessary, I don't think that we've necessarily always got the right leadership sort of mentality. We've still got that group think that goes on in corners of the public sector because of all the things that you've said. You know, people have been there a long time. They know what works. They know what the safe environment is or that comfort zone is. And, you know, some of the changes that need to be brought in can take more than the four, five, six years that they are contracted to stay in, in position for as well. <laughs> I see, I see I could, that look. I, I recognise that look. <laughs> it's just that what you've just said is so exciting to me because um i and i tell me if i go off at a tangent but well, please some, do i like tangents excellent well let's go on the tangent then because i'm really concerned about this notion of let's train it away let's just train the and it's quite this is something that we can fall into in public sector organizations um let's train away the problem of racism mm -hmm. so we'll we will so we, we, we're going to put this training in and we might maybe we talk about protected characteristics. Um, but really, how, how much is that doing to resolve and help us to recognise our own internal bias? You know, so I, yeah. I, I'm so interested by 
um, you know, just innovative ideas that I don't want to call it training anymore. I don't like the idea of we can train things away. This sounds like real developmental work that you were doing there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the stuff that we've been doing with so many organisations are, are, are open to it. Um, it's been so exciting. In fact, one of the development programmes that I've got, I'm so excited. I'm going to announce it on LinkedIn today, later. I've just been told is now the subject of PhD research. So I'm like, wow, you know, PhD psychology research as well. So because it's working and... If that kind of stuff is out there and it's working, all it needs now for me, all it needs is for leaders in other organisations to have the wherewithal and the courage, what I call leadership courage, to say, do you know what? Let's try that. Let's try something different. Let's try something that we've never tried before. But unfortunately, what I, what I often hear, particularly in the public sector, particularly in the police service, because I'm so linked to the police services, they'll rebadge something that they used to do before, call it something fresh, and hopefully get different results. And you know, well, we all know what Einstein once said about that kind of stuff, you know? Uh, so for me, you know, the stuff that you do around, and I want to bring it back onto you, um, around serious case reviews, I think is so invaluable um, because the other thing around uh, SILP is it's like a values-led movement. Now, anything that centers on values and starts from a values perspective has got to be a healthy thing. So how have you, what are the values that drive SILP and what are the philosophies, the central philosophies behind SILP? I know that you talked about learning organisation, which is really powerful. I guess it's time for me to kind of bust the myth that um, most people who want to come and work with me want the how to. Well, ha just tell me how to do a review. Mm. And of course, you know, that they have access to a portal, many videos from me. Here's your presentation. Here's your author's briefing. And everybody will get that. But what I'm sneaking in, Cole, please don't tell anyone. There's no one listening here, is there? <laughs> uh, what I'm sneaking in is a six-week orientation phase before we get into any of that where we're going to explore values. We're going to explore that. what happens in organisations. We're going to explore internally, um, you know, why we're doing what we do not only yeah. to, within our own four walls and what we want about our own work-life balance, but, you know, when I spot all those ingredients that I was putting together when I didn't realise it, when I was making my transition, I now know that... I love, I love this focus on, cook, uh, on values that you've got because, you know, that is, sits at the heart of everything that we should be doing. And often you're right, you, we're just focusing on, on the what as opposed to the why. And the why is so very important. Because we won't be driven in the same way if our, if, if our values aren't leading it, will we? It's be a bit boring or it'll be the thing that you put to the bottom of your to-do list. And the same with culture. You know, we've talked about culture. People got, aren't going to work in a, uh, towards a values-led culture if they don't buy into it, if they don't believe into it, or if you're not recruiting people who share your same values. Often when we recruit people into our organisations, we, we focus far too much on the IQ, the technical skills, the qualifications, and we don't focus enough on the EQ skills, you know, the who are these people? What do they stand for? What is it? What's their drive to coming to, into? We don't focus on that enough. And I think that's what you're sort of alluding to with SILP. And I'm so pleased that you're doing that, really. So um, I think my number one value is connection. That. And that's, but I've realised that that's me personally, but I've realised it's completely infused everything in in my spaces so in my world of, of reviews and the spaces that I create for people to develop um, so I, that one happens to permeate both 
Yeah. Love and connection are my my two. Love them. And then professionally, what I've realised is that I came into a, this world that was with reviews that was structured about looking for what went wrong. Yeah. And I realised that strengths focus is very much the number one value. And the thing that I've found hardest throughout this time since two thousand and nine to instill and bring through. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely so in in a in a professional sense. I believe shifting that focus to, towards strengths, towards what went well, um, and towards you know thinking positively to create solutions um, is what turns the turns the key and creates the learning. I love that. One of my core values is solution focused thinking. Oh, is it? I, I, I also, uh, always say if you look at a problem long enough, all that's going to happen is it's, it, you're going to give it life until grow in your mindset to a point where it be, that problem becomes a mountain and it becomes insurmountable. But if you're a solution-focused individual looking at the same problem, what you're looking for is how do I get around this? How do I work around this? How do I traverse this? You know, So it's a wholly different mindset. So that's one of my core uh, values as well so I love that I was um, I was speaking at a conference last week and I explained my journey of the lawyer trying from 2009 just thinking I could just bring this idea of solutions focus into this yeah. world that was so deficit focused and I explained as you say the mistakes the me trying to do it and not not bringing people along and it's taken me quite a few years really to 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 get there well you know i've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation you've shared vulnerability you've shared values you've shared a truth and you know real openness uh, and i can see the drive behind silk you're doing some great work keep doing that work and keep helping organizations that want to learn donna thank you so much for being on our program thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.